Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who has offered transapical mitral valve repair procedures for more than three years and currently serves as a trial site for 16 clinical trials. Information at pinnaclehealth.org slash myheart. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The lives of 1,554 Pennsylvanians were saved last year by donated organs. Nonetheless, more than 250 died while waiting for life-saving organ donations. Advocates have been working with the state for years to raise awareness of the need for organ donation and get as many people registered to donate as possible. Still, only 46% of Pennsylvanians are registered to donate their organs. Over the next hour, we're going to be talking about organ donation talking about those who have received organs and had life-saving organ transplants, a whole variety of areas and people that uh, we'll be discussing over the next hour. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. I think that uh, once we get into this discussion, you'll find that there are a lot of questions surrounding organ donation and some that make you know, keep people from uh, becoming an organ donor. So this is an opportunity to ask uh, some of those questions and get some of those questions answered. Joining us now is Richard Haas, Vice President of Clinical Services with the Gift of Life Donor Program. The program is a nonprofit organization serving the region of eastern Pennsylvania, southern New Jersey, and Delaware. It's responsible for responsible for recovering and distributing organs and tissues used in life-saving and life-enhancing transplants. And uh, Mr. Haas, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Also joining us on the program is Dr. Uh, I, have, I have so many people here, I have to kind of look around. Dr. Michael Freeman is Director of Pediatric Dialysis Services and a Clinical Ethics Consultant at Penn State Children's Hospital. Dr. Freeman, welcome to the program. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. And we also have two people who have experienced this firsthand. Joining us is Joe Gargiulo, who is a retired high school administrator and a multiple organ recipient. Master Gargiulo, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's and great to be here. We also have uh, Whitney Baker. Two years ago, she do- she donated a kidney to her lifelong friend who had a chronic renal disease. Uh, Miss Baker, welcome to the program. Thank you. And again, that phone number is one eight hundred seven two nine seven five three two. All right, Joe Gargiulo, let me start with you. I mean, this is one of these things that. Uh, you know, we can talk around this a whole lot. We can answer questions. But for those who have actually gone through it, you probably know more about it than almost anyone else here. So tell me your story. You uh, you actually multiple organs. Well, actually, Scott, that's true. I did have multiple organs. Um, I found out in 1986 that I had a chronic kidney disease that over the course of the next few years would deteriorate. And at some point, I would be in end-stage renal failure. Uh, at the time, I was a school principal, and I um, had a job to do, and I was wondering how I was going to do both. Uh, over the t- course of the, the few years that I waited until the time came for me to, to have this transplant or be placed on dialysis, I worked very hard. I was concerned that I would reach a point, maybe age 46, 47, and uh, my life would be over, that I wasn't sure I'd be able to continue. In uh, 19... 93, um, I began dialysis. Uh, my kidneys had gotten to the point where they were not functioning anymore, and I had to go three times a week, sit in a chair for four hours at a time with needles in my arm, two needles. Uh, the needles, for those of you who are not familiar, are about the size of a cocktail stirrer. Uh, they're rather hollow, they're big, and they go into your vein or fistula, which I also had to have Im- implanted in my arm. Uh, did that for three years, and uh, finally in 1997, a donor became available. I remember distinctly what happened. It was April uh, 13th. I received a call, Mr. Gargiulo, we think we have a, 
organ for you. Do you think you can come in? Uh, my answer was obviously yes. I think I can come in. <laughs> can I rep for just one second? So, how long did you have to wait? I waited from 1986 when I found out that I was ill until 1997. Okay, so it was that long. Eleven years, and four of those were on dialysis. Mm. Went in, had the transplant. The doctors at Hershey were fantastic, uh, and they kicked me out six days later because my kidney was functioning and they said I would be healthier at home than I would be if I stayed in the hospital. I recovered very quickly, went back to work and continued to work as a principal um, in a rather large school until around 2008 when I discovered that the drugs that I had been taking, which helped to to keep me from rejecting the kidney, actually uh, were actually toxic to the kidney. So the the kidney had deteriorated, the donor kidney had deteriorated, and I was back on dialysis. Uh, this time, however, we found out that there was a complication with my liver. It had an infection, and you cannot transplant someone uh, with an active infection. So they decided it was necessary for me to have both a liver and a kidney. And again, in April this time, 2009, uh, April 10th to be specific, I was called, Mr. Gargiulo, do you feel healthy enough to come in and have this transplant done? And the answer again was yes. Uh, I went in. Um, they did the transplant. It took a lot longer because it was two organs. At the end of six days, Hershey kicked me out again. They said if I stayed there, I'd more likely get sick than if I went home. And it took me about six months to fully recover. And I've been retired since that time, since 2008. So uh, I have been active and healthy and robust and enjoying my grandchildren and Above all, very, very thankful to the families who provided this gift, not once but twice, uh, to me. A couple questions. Sure. First of all, while waiting, what are, what are you thinking? I mean, you waited a long time. While <clears throat> waiting for an organ, what was your thought process? What was going through your mind? I became very focused on trying to, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> I became very focused on trying to get my job done because I was not sure how much time I would have left. Um, I am a type A personality to begin with. So, really? Oh, yeah. So I was even more so uh, working extra hours, working overtime while I was healthy enough to do it, working well into the night um, to try to get things done for my school and for my students and my teachers. Um, when the first transplant came through, I was very sick. I was almost gray in color. Uh, I could drink very little liquid. Uh, I had to be careful what sorts of foods I ate. Uh, potatoes, which are my joy, were prohibited from me because of the potassium. Um, so when it came through, it was really an extension of my life. I mean, I felt I had been reborn uh, in in uh, 1997 when I received that first transplant, and I was just overjoyed. But during that time that I waited, I was not despondent, but convinced that there was a lot I had to get done in a shorter span of time because I did not have the time everybody else had. Mm. Liver and uh, and kidney, I mean, a, a multiple organ transplant, obviously one is difficult, but two at the same time. I mean, again, what were you thinking then? Well, I have a great wife. She's here today, by the way. Uh, yeah, I wish she were here today. She's home babysitting our uh, our granddaughter. Oh, I'm sorry. No. <laughs> uh, my wife, Debbie, is babysitting our granddaughter, Gabby. Uh, but she is here. She's sitting right here to my right okay. uh, in spirit. She kept me going. Uh, she uh, bolstered me. She worried about me. She made sure that I ate the right things. And... Uh, through all that, I think that more than anything, she had a lot to do with, even though she did not give me an organ, uh, she could have. We found out that she was, in fact, compatible. That wasn't the reason I married her. I married her because I loved her. Uh, not, for, not for her organs, in case the question comes up. Uh, but uh, she kept me going at a time when I, there were times when I felt, no, I just can't do this another day. So, uh, uh, Richard Haas, I don't know whether it's a typical story, but I think that, uh, you know, some of the things that uh, Joe experienced emotionally <clears throat> and physically are kind of uh, are typical, don't you think? Yeah, I think uh, Joe's story is very similar to the other patients and candidates who are awaiting transplantation story, you know, sitting at home waiting for that phone call. You know, in Pennsylvania right now, we have 7,600 people just like Joe 
who are waiting for that phone call for their organ to become available. How long does it usually take? Yeah, it, it depends by organ, but right now, for example, for a kidney transplant in our area, it's about a four-and-a-half-year to five-year waiting time. Is kidney the most common? Kidney is the most common. Most, um, you know, uh, most of the people who are on, on the waiting list right now are waiting for a kidney transplant. What are, what's the waiting time for some of the other organs, like heart and well, liver, for example? Right. Um, and that, and that, that varies uh, by organ uh, but in, and how sick you are. Uh, the way uh, with, with, you know, the advantage you have uh, waiting for a kidney transplant, as Joe described, is you have the opportunity to have dialysis. So you have an artificial kidney, uh, you know, working for you. Unfortunately, uh, if you're waiting for lungs or waiting for a liver, you know, we don't have artificial devices. So uh, we prioritize patients on how sick they are uh, with the sicker patients moving to the top of the list. Uh, so uh, depending on when you're uh, diagnosed with your disease um, and how sick you become, you know, can really uh, impact how long you wait. This, you know, just a few weeks ago, we were on the air telling a story of uh, former Governor Robert Casey, who had re- received a, a double organ transplant and got it like two days after the doctor right. said uh, that, that he needed it. A double organ transplant is, is different in that you're getting two organs, obviously, uh, so you need a match with both. Was that one of the reasons that you were able to get the liver and the uh, kidney quicker than you had before? Actually, my my case was a little bit convoluted in that my kidneys were gone. They had removed them, so I had no kidneys at all at that point. The liver issue had something to do with an infection that I was getting because of of another complication had nothing to do with the kidney. However, the liver was otherwise very healthy. So the situation was such that my liver score was keeping me from getting a transplant while my kidney need was setting me up for a transplant. So actually there was some consideration that had to be given as to what my life expectancy was if I didn't get the kidney. Um, and it was not good the second time through. Uh, so they, they decided that uh, they were going to try to help me out, and they, in fact, did tremendously. Dr. Freeman, that does sound unusual. Uh, it is a, a quite unusual. I was just hearing Joe's story when we were talking before we came in. And the need for multiple organs is not as unusual as you might think because a lot of the systems in our body are connected. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we have isolated problems with one organ, and that can lead to certain issues. But in many cases, they're manifestations of a a broader disease. And so while it isn't typical, it certainly isn't as rare as you might think. And as a result, there are some factors built into the allocation systems, which are quite complex and sort of hard to to go over in a brief time. But some mechanisms to address those issues to get organs to the people that need it. And if you need two organs, it's often best for those to have come from a single donor, Mm -hmm. a single deceased donor. And the system tries to take that into account. That was actually the case with Governor Casey, that Mm -hmm. there was a pre-existing policy that if you needed two organs, you got priority. And that was part of what led to it being such a rapid turnaround. Now, you are director of pediatric dialysis services at uh, Penn State uh, Children's Hospital. Um, with children, do children get moved up on the list? I mean, is that one of the, the priorities? It is. It's part of the priority system. It has to do children get some advantages. There's a, a goal, particularly in kidneys. If there's someone who will be a particularly good match for a kidney, they have some priority. Um, and then if there are people who otherwise we think it will be very hard to find any kidney for them. So there's very few matches in the population. Those are all things that get factored in, along with things like waiting time, um, because as Richard was alluding to, in kidney we have the advantage of something we can do in the meantime, which is dialysis. Right. It's not a good solution. It's just the best we have until you have an organ. Uh, but that allows us to put a lot of emphasis on how long someone is waiting and factor that into the decisions. Mm-hmm. And this is all standardized. We have a lot to talk about here, and we're here to answer your questions as well. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. <laughs> Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information 
information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at pinnaclehealth.org. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about organ donation here in Pennsylvania. Our guest, Richard Haas, Vice President of Clinical Services with the Gift of Life Donor Program. Dr. Michael Freeman, Director of Pediatric Dialysis Services and a clinical ethics consultant at Penn State Children's Hospital. Joe Gargiulo, who is a retired high school administrator, multiple organ recipient, and we're going to be talking in just a few minutes with Whitney Baker, who uh, donated a kidney to her lifelong friend uh, who had uh, chronic renal disease, and uh, we'll hear from Whitney in just a few minutes. Again, if you have a question or comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page or on Twitter. We are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, that phone number 1-800-729-7532. Richard Haas, I've been jumping around a little bit uh, telling the, uh, you know Joe's story and asking a few questions here and there. I want to kind of establish some background here for uh, the listeners out there of where we stand in Pennsylvania. As I mentioned in the introduction, only 46%, I say only, you know, my only may not be someone else's only, but 46% of uh, Pennsylvanians uh, have registered to donate an organ. Most of the time they do that when they renew their driver's license. Talk about that. That seems like a low number. Yeah, it, it's a, you know, that number hasn't really changed over the last uh, 20 years or so. And when we look at some of the data behind it and we do some Gallup poll surveys, we know that families support donation when asked at almost 96 percent uh, when we ask them, hey, would you like to be uh, an organ donor? Yet they, they fail to put it on their driver's license, you know, you know less than, you know, as you said, 46 percent. And there's a lot of reasons. Um, some of it is uh, people, if you look at some of the statistics, people who are older uh, start self-selecting and don't believe they could actually be an organ donor, uh, which is, isn't really true. That's I mean, a myth. That is a myth. Uh, our oldest donor in our program has been 84 years uh, of age. Uh, but when you look at the, the driver's license statistics, there's a step-down progression of the percentage of people signing up to be a donor as you get older and older. So, you know, that's definitely one of the myths out there that, you know, we evaluate uh, every potential donor on a case-by-case basis, and and age is only one factor uh, in determining your suitability. Uh, The other common myth that we hear and concern is that if I have the driver's license designation on my license, uh, when I come into the emergency department, uh, I won't get the same amount of care, and uh, they will just uh, want me for my organs. And, you know, that's another myth that is promulgated out there, and it's just the uh, organ donation team and the transplant teams are really two separate teams from the teams uh, that are trying to take care of you uh, during uh, during your hospitalization. So. Uh, you know, those are two of, the, we think, the biggest reasons and, you know, more education. And then the last reason, and when, we, when we're talking to families, particularly in the hospital, in the acute care setting, is that they just haven't talked about it. And so you're making a decision now not for yourself, but you're making a decision for your loved one. And they really haven't had that conversation. And I think many of us don't sit around the dinner table and have that conversation of whether or not we want to be a donor or what we want to have done uh, even with our belongings after we die. So it's really encouraging those types of conversations for folks. That conversation with family members is important, isn't it? Because uh, you know it's one thing to have it on your driver's license that you're an organ donor, but you know, heaven forbid there's a tragedy, you're in the emergency room, uh, you know, the, the the person passes, the family may be learning for the very first time that the person, that their relative, their family member, their loved one, w- wanted to donate their organs and may say, no, we're not going to do that. Right. I think the, the worst possible time is many times when it, when it is the actual time that we're talking to families is the first time they're hearing about uh, organ donation in that acute care setting. And you know, these families are in, a, in acute stages of grief, uh, and having that conversation way ahead of time and uh, knowing what their wishes were 
make this a lot easier uh, for for your family at mm-hmm. that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there, you know, and Dr. Freeman, you're an ethicist as, as well. I, I know that there are people who have a lot of questions about, like, religion, for example, or uh, funerals that, you know, well, can we have an open casket if uh, they've removed eyes or other organs? What about the ethics of this? Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad you opened up with an easy question to start from the very beginning. But uh, <laughs> okay. d- to start with your first question about the question of religions, um, all what we normally think of as, as major uh, religious branches uh, throughout the world endorse organ transplantation. There are sometimes different subtleties, and so I don't want to speak to anyone's particular divisions of faith. Uh, but in general... It's seen as a a valuable gift that you can give to people, and so there's no blanket uh, religious prohibition against any of it. Similarly, there's great care taken to address all these concerns for families, things about the appearance of their loved ones after they die, because we try very hard to recognize it as a gift. And so treat it respectively, respectfully, excuse me, in that sense. And so I think that that concern's very understandable. Um, but in practice, I think people do a, a, a wonderful job alleviating those concerns when they go through the process, if they can. You know, something Richard mentioned, though, that, uh, you know, and he said, uh, identified it as a myth. But I don't know whether you've actually had to do this or not, uh, but that, that there are people who, who do believe that their care, they won't get as, uh, as quality of care because, oh, this is an organ donor. This person doesn't have a good chance. We're going to take the we're going to take the organs. So, uh, it's an interesting question you asked me because I do want to make it clear that Richard was exactly correct that the people involved with your care are kept deliberately separate from the people working to discuss things like organ donation. And so, when you say, in my experience, in a sense, I haven't had that experience directly because that's a deliberate decision. But what I will say is that. As a physician and sort of going to that role rather than the ethicist role, we really are focused on the person in front of us. And that's what we strive to do. And so we try to provide the care for that person. And these are all secondary considerations that we start with the question of the patient, the patient and their family, and then we move from there. And in many cases, the ability to donate organs can actually be a great comfort and be very consistent with that person's view of themselves in the world. And that's something we can offer as a benefit. But I don't think it ever takes priority over the care of the person in front of us. Well, we're going to speak with someone now who actually was a donor. Uh, Whitney Baker, two years ago, she she donated a kidney to her lifelong friend who had a chronic renal disease. Whitney, welcome to the program. Thank you. So tell us your story. Tell us about your friend and uh, what made you want to do this. Well, my, my friend Lauren received um, her first kidney in 1991 at the age of nine. Um, by then, both of her kidneys had failed, and she had been on dialysis approximately eight or nine months uh, when she received a kidney from her mom. So this was 91. Fast forward 24 years. Um, you know, we were friends since then. We've always been friends, lifelong friends. So we, we kind of always knew at some point Lauren was going to need another kidney. Um, so it was probably late 2014, um, early 2015, when, you know, the time finally came that, uh, you know, this was becoming more and more apparent. Um, And Lauren has a sister who we just kind of always assumed, well, her sister will likely be, you know, her next donor. And so her sister went through the evaluation process um, at Hershey and uh, was actually found unable to donate. So, you know, we were back to the beginning. Um, And so I immediately thought, well, to myself at first, Maybe I could do this. Um, so this is this is probably March of 2015, um, and I thought about it on my own a little bit first because at that time I had a two-year-old and a four-year-old. wasn't exactly the time of my life when I should be thinking about donating organs to other people. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I started doing a little research online, kind of tossed it out to my husband. You know, slowly, my family, and my whole—I mean, like I said, our families have been friends forever. So everyone knew Lauren, knew the situation. We were all there the first time. Um, so I kind of just threw feelers out there a little bit slowly um, and gave it a couple weeks, did some research, and, and finally decided to just call and be evaluated. Um, and that was March of 2015. 
so, um, you know, that was the hardest part for me, honestly. The, the most stressful part was the, do I do it? Do I, do I not? Um, and for me, I wasn't going to call Hershey until I kind of had it set in my mind, um, you know, I, I'm going to do this. So that was the biggest, the hardest thing, I think, for me was making that first initial phone call. Um, and after that, it just went so quickly. I was evaluated in um, March and April of 2015, went through all the testing. I was found to be um, a really close uh, you know, match, so to speak. Lauren and I shared um, three out of six of these important genetic markers, the same as what a parent might share. So wow. it's really kind of uncommon. I mean, that's, when they called me, when I got the phone call in May from the um, coordinator at Hershey, she, I think, used the word rare. She said, this is really kind of strange for an unrelated potential donor to share such similar important markers. Um, and so I felt like at that point, well, done. You know, this is what's supposed to happen. And a month later, we were scheduled in June of 2015 and uh, haven't stopped since. Well, I, you know, I'm sure that uh, Lauren is very thankful to you, but that that is that's quite a story that uh, yeah. you, you were that much of a match, uh, not yeah, not being with her own father. Her, wow. her dad was a three out of six on these markers that they they look for. I think her mom was like a four. I mean, a three is what a parent would automatically be. So for a non-related donor um, to be a three was, from what I understood, to be um, great. Yeah, it really sounds that way. So uh, there's always a couple questions that sure. uh, people have for for donors. Yeah. Uh, was there anything as far as, okay, now you underwent surgery, so surgery is no uh, nothing to just, uh, uh, you know, say, well, it's, it's just surgery, so I'm just having my kidney removed. Uh, right. You know, it's always something you have to think about. Uh, no complications or anything? That Was that a problem at all? No, no. Um, like I said, I had a two-year-old and a four-year-old at the time, both of which were born um, via cesarean. So I kind of might have been a little overconfident thinking, I, I can do this, I can handle this. And they actually performed, they used the same um, incision that they used with my kids. And so I thought, oh, oh, you know, this was great first two times. And, and I had no problems. I didn't. It, it went beautifully. What about cost to you? I'm sure that this is also uh, a question that many people have. Yes, I'd like to be an organ tra uh, donor, but uh, at the same time, I don't want it to cost me anything. Sure. It didn't cost me anything. Um, you know, it, I, that may not be true. I might have had to pay for some pain medication, but a um, couple of dollars. All my appointments, my follow-up care, hospital stay, I have not had to pay anything. Um, I went back for a one-year check last summer. I'm doing a, another my two-year check in another month here, um, and it, not, it has cost me nothing. No, I'm a teacher, so I was able to um, work around my teaching schedule, and that's why we did the surgery in the in the summer so that I wouldn't have to uh, miss any time from work. You know, that would be an expense that people would have to incur on their own. Donors would be time off work, and um, but for me, that wasn't an issue. Being a teacher, I went back in the fall. Um, and was able to continue working just as I had the previous year. So it has cost me nothing. So what about your own health? Have you had any uh, negative impacts on your health as a result of the kidney being removed? None. 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 No, my one-year checkup was great, blood work. that they, you know, I, they really do a nice job of um, follow-up and even the care before, the whole way through. Like, I, perfectly fine. Um, I expect the same when I go back next month. In fact, actually, at the end of next month, I'm expecting my third child. I've had a very easy pregnancy post-donation. Um, I've had no health health problems whatsoever since donating. Wow. I mean, you, yeah. you, you, you kind of have a, a really positive story to tell me. Yeah, yeah, you know, same you know, incision? And, and Lauren's health is really good. Like it's, it has, it, and Lauren's mom, the original donor, um, you know, even now... 25 years, like she's in great health. So, um, you know, we really, it is a positive story all around. It's, it's gone really well for all of us involved. You know, and I, I hate to ask the how do you feel questions, but mm -hmm. uh, what were your emotions? What were you, th I mean, how do you feel after, I'm going to ask it anyway, um, yeah. how do you feel afterwards and a few years down the road? And I assume uh, that uh, Lauren is healthy. Oh, yeah, she, and she's very healthy. We see each other all the time. Our families continue to get together all the I mean, I feel great. Um, 
you know, I, I sometimes don't even actually think about the fact that it's happened. Um, you know, because now my kids are six and four and I've got another one come in. I teach full time. Your life goes on. You just, you keep going. Um, and so sometimes I stop and think, did that actually happen? That really happened? And, um, and I feel really good about it. We, we joke, you know, with, with each other. I say, how's my kidney doing? We joked a little bit about whether or not Lauren would become a runner after the surgery, um, because I'm a runner. And so we, you know, we have it because it's been such a positive experience. Um, all of our, you know, feelings are positive. We have, it's just been a really good, good experience the whole way through. Wow. Well, thank you very much for telling sure. your story. We have a teacher and we have a principal. Is there something about educators that, uh, about organs? We know it's the right thing to do. We know it's the right thing to do. So, Richard Haas, when you hear that story, what do you think? Uh, it's an amazing story, and I, I would hope if I ever needed an organ, I had a friend uh, like that. Oh, because... I thought you were going to say, where's Whitney? I mean, it's an amazing gift, uh, you know, being a living donor um, and being able to uh, provide that gift to to a friend or sometimes even a stranger. Uh, we've had uh, altruistic strangers come forward just to donate uh, a gift to somebody, uh, and they start uh, a chain of events where... Uh, a number of people can get a transplant um, using these uh, different types of uh, chains. So, um, you know, I might need a kidney, and Scott uh, was is willing to, or you're willing to donate to me, but we don't match. And there's three or four pairs like that, and then someone comes along and starts a chain, and maybe gives me a kidney. Then Scott, you give somebody else a kidney, and it, and it starts these chain uh, chain of events that you know one kidney transplant can turn into 15 kidney transplants. Mm-hmm. So. Living donation uh, is really one of the biggest areas uh, where we think we can solve some of the donor shortage. Let's uh, take some phone calls and emails. Nelson is in Mechanicsburg. Nelson, you're on the air. Well, good morning. Good morning. I have a question about uh, an elderly man, which is me, in great health. The only medication I take is uh, aspirin maybe twice a week. But I know because of my age and the obvious reasons that uh, probably I'm coming on to a prostate problem. Can I still donate a kidney or would it be feasible? Thank you very much for your call. Yeah, not, nothing um, you know that he said would ne- necessarily prevent him uh, from being a donor. Uh, we'll evaluate uh, your organ function at, at the time uh, that you would pass away and uh, we do a complete medical and social history questionnaire uh, with your family so we know uh, the risks and, and the benefits to a potential patient uh, who's on the waiting list. Uh, but nothing uh, in that scenario uh, really would prevent him from being a donor. So how much is the donor's health considered? I mean, th- are there people who are turned down and say, you know, we'd love to have your organs, but you know, you have this illness or... Uh, this condition, and you're just not a good. Or you've, and I will ask about medication too, because he brought that up. Sure, uh, every, everyone is different, but the only absolute uh, contraindication to being a donor is if you have active cancer. Uh, other than that, uh, there isn't really any one condition that's going to preclude you from being a donor. Uh, you know, the Hope Act uh, was recently passed, uh, which uh, which now allows us to recover organs from HIV-positive patients to uh, transplant HIV-positive candidates who are awaiting. Uh, It's not infrequent that someone might have hepatitis C, and we'll try to match them to a recipient. Can I interrupt you for just a second? Because we have just that uh, scenario here. Gwen is in Fairfield. Gwen, you're on the air. Good morning. Morning. Thank you so much for taking my call. Yes, I really appreciate this program. Thank you. I've been addicted to it since Inauguration Day. <laughs> um, I've been an organ donor for a long time, um, and I appreciate bringing up the, um, the the family discussions that I probably have never had with my children. Um, but anyway, my um, I was diagnosed with hep C 17 years ago, and due to circumstances um, like depression, too depressed for the treatment that was available up until Harvoni was released. Um, I did a two-month regimen last year. I no longer have hep C, which is just totally awesome. And I can imagine that 
far more livers will be available, more healthier livers will be available with the Harvoni, which is probably another good discussion for smart dogs. Yeah. I'm always looking for topics. <laughs> <laughs> if I could just add, uh, Scott, there was just recently a study uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine from uh, the University of Pennsylvania where they were uh, transplanting hepatitis C positive kidneys uh, from deceased donors into uh, uninfected uh, recipients uh, and then uh, treating them uh, with Harvoni. Uh, and they did afterwards. Afterwards. So mm-hmm. they did 10 patients. Uh, all the patients uh, seroconverted, became positive for the hepatitis virus, were treated. All 10 were cured. Uh, and so, you know, people with hepatitis C can become donors. And because of that waiting list, uh, the number of patients who are waiting who have hepatitis C, we've kind of run out of that. We, we've had uh, about 10% of our donors have that hepatitis C virus. Uh, and now we're able to better utilize those kidneys, not only in hepatitis C positive recipients, but also potentially uninfected and then curing them of that disease. So there's a lot of good innovative uh, medicine going on in this area. So, Gwen, are you going to have that conversation with the family? I certainly am. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much for calling in and uh, for for being a donor. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about organ donation here in Pennsylvania today. Our guest, Richard Haas, Vice President of Clinical Services, Gift of Life Donor Program. Dr. Michael Freeman, Director of Pediatric Dialysis Services and a Clinical Ethics Consultant at Penn State Children's Hospital. Joe Gargiolo, who is a retired high school administrator and a multiple organ recipient. And uh, Whitney Baker told her story as well. She donated a kidney to her friend and was almost a, I can't say a perfect match, but three out of six, that sounds almost perfect, Whitney. I, I think it's pretty good. Okay, well, we won't say perfect, but it's pretty good, and we'll we'll take your description. 1-800-729-7532. You can send uh, an email to smarttalk at WITF.org, question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Also uh, on Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, that's 1-800-729-7532. We have uh, an email here. Uh, Linda wanted to know, has there ever been cases of donors needing a donation themselves later on? Uh, Unfortunately, there have been. Uh, You know, someone who has donated a kidney uh, and then for some reason uh, goes on and and needs a kidney transplant. Uh, There is a a safety net uh, built into the allocation system uh, so that uh, when a deceased kidney then becomes available, extra points are provided uh, for those patients who need a kidney who have been a prior living donor. So there is a safety net available for uh, living donors. John in Harrisburg asks, uh, please have your panel discuss GMO animals for the purpose of human organ transplant. Oh. And it, so our ethicist is going to weigh in here. Yes. Uh, so this is actually, a, a there's a lot of very interesting questions on the horizon in terms of research for organ replacement. And we're not there yet, which makes things like deceased and living donor donation very important. Uh, But things along the lines of uh, looking what we call xenotransplants, so certain animal species that in some cases are being genetically modified. Pigs? Pigs are a a commonly investigated one to be used for potential organ transplants for things like hearts in particular. There is some research going on uh, for more intensive artificial organs, often involving techniques such as 3D printing. And the hope is that in the course of my clinical practice, this may eventually occur, um, but certainly isn't there yet. So we have this dual uh, goal of trying to pursue these approaches that may eventually alleviate these problems, but not wanting our hopes for this to overshadow the current problems of patients waiting, because none of them are going to happen in the immediate future by any means. Penn State Hershey uh, is a pioneer, was a pioneer in artificial heart. Uh, very first artificial heart transplant into a human occurred at, at Hershey. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard a whole lot about it. Has it become so common that we don't hear a lot about it, or is it something that just doesn't happen that often? Well, the reality is is that as innovative as some of our older approaches to artificial organs, particularly hearts, which are very mechanical, mm-hmm. as innovative as they were, it's still not as good an approach as using 
actual tissue, your right. body's own components, which is why organ transplantation is really take the lead. Uh, much of the effort now in organs uh, such as the heart is used in designing devices that assist your own heart mm. to do the job rather than replace it. Uh, which has a lot of limitations. And that's often used as a bridge to eventual transplantation. Mm -hmm. Richard, and this is a question, uh, this is from Vinny in York, uh, and this is a question I wanted to ask because I know that this is an issue. Uh, was hoping that the guests could discuss the racial disparities in transplant rates. Yeah, uh, you know, right now, uh, if you look at the waiting list, uh, particularly in our area, uh, it's predominantly African-American. Uh, unfortunately, um, more African Americans have hypertension uh, and diabetes uh, and suffer uh, from kidney failure uh, at a much larger rate um, than, in, in, than in other races. So uh, it, it's a problem, uh, and it's something that, uh, you know, they make up the majority uh, of the waiting list. And w what about donors? I mean, do we have African Americans that, uh, I mean, are they donating at a, a lesser rate than, than other uh, races? So r right now, uh, if we look at uh, the gift of life experience in donation, uh, you know, the African American population in our area is about 13%, and about 13% of our donors are Afri African Americans. Okay, so so African Americans uh, yeah. do donate. Um, you know, I think there are some more myths uh, in in the African American community as it relates to donation, particularly, you know, considering some of the research that was done and some of the Tuskegee experiments. And so, there's some uh, level of mistrust uh, in general in the healthcare community. Uh, but I think uh, when when we when we sit down and, and we're talking to a grieving family and letting them know. Uh, that they may be able to help somebody else, uh, that they they reach out and it's a neighbor helping neighbor type of thing. Good, Dr. Freeman. And, and actually, this is an area where I've been involved in some research and done some publications. And um, it's certainly true in the area we have proportionate donation. And in many parts of, of the country, um, African Americans actually donated higher rates proportionally than, than the white population. But as Richard alluded to, for certain diseases, particularly kidney diseases, for some genetic reasons, there are increased rates of failure. But the broader problem is, is that this also reflects a, a number of of uh, health disparities across the population. And so there are problems with people with having access to care early on in their disease course that can delay the need for transplant and get them involved with the transplantation process earlier. So unfortunately, it's a very complicated question that goes beyond just the moment so, of transplantation and the care I, to broader so that's health my, questions. That was my question. Are you saying that, I mean, this is obviously not a trip to the doctor. Oh, you need a transplant. You're going to be in next week. We're going to take care of this. This is, as you know, as Joe said, you know, you waited 11 years for a transplant for a kidney. This is a, something that I was about to say lifelong. Maybe for some people it is, but something that is a course of years rather than days, weeks, months. So are you saying that because there are African-Americans who are not getting good health care, to begin with, it's one of the reasons that they're not getting transplants? Not that they're not getting transplants and they're not given priority, but when we think of the system as a whole, uh, for example, um, Joe was talking about the time he spent waiting, but that's really time from when his disease is known and diagnosed and we can begin that process. And there are some safeguards involved to try to backdate it to the point when your kidneys, for example, get very sick. But it's still dependent on people getting engaged with the healthcare system. You gotta go to the doctor. Yeah, and, and that if you, don't, if you don't have the opportunity to do that or you don't have the resources right. to do that, that can certainly delay the process, not because of any decisions that people make or any lack of priority or right. importance, but because there are those variations uh, that sometimes plays itself out in the overall transplant rate. Yeah, and that's what I was getting at. Let's go to BJ and Hershey. BJ, you're on the air. Hey, I'm an organ donor, but I recently, um, since my daughter's in the more medical field, a uh, body donor has come up. Uh, when you uh, are an organ donor, uh, and become a body donor. Does your these select organs first, and then give the rest of the body donors to be looked at under microscope? Hey, hey, BJ, can I ask you a question before our panel uh, answers your question? Why did you decide to donate your body? Uh, my daughter is a, a graduate student at Penn State, and 
he uh, worked with uh, human brains, real ones. And uh, I feel that I can be more useful in that part. You know, somebody can look at me and say, hey, this is what's happening in this, this type of body. Hey, thank you very much for your call. We've actually gotten a few questions along these lines, Richard, of, uh, you know, whether it's m takes more of a priority to donate an entire body or individual organs. So, you know, the thing about donation is it's really the family's choice. So as we sit down and, and talk to families, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll provide those opportunities for them. Uh, you can do all of those things. You can donate your organs uh, and tissues for transplantation uh, and still have uh, your body available uh, for research. We support a variety of different uh, research opportunities, both in the, some of the traumatic brain injury field uh, as well as uh, for anatomic patho uh, pathology and the study of you know, anatomy for students. Uh, so uh, those opportunities uh, don't preclude each other. Uh, and many families choose all three. The brain, I would imagine, is especially important because, like, for Alzheimer's, for example, uh, you don't know what until there's an autopsy uh, that whether a person actually has Alzheimer's or not. Just have you have to ask questions, and you you can see the symptoms, right? Well, we're in, involved in a number of research projects, particularly around traumatic brain injury, mm -hmm. uh, both uh, through uh, some of the uh, Department of Defense uh, grants and looking at that for some of our uh, our servicemen who uh, suffer some type of brain injury. Uh, to some of the concussion research that you've heard with yeah. the NFL. Uh, and so uh, there are, you know, a, a lot of opportunities for research. And, then, you know, that's one option families have uh, and how the, to direct their gifts at the end of life. Let's take a call from Maria in Mechanicsburg. Maria, you're on the air. Good morning. Uh, I also want to thank the families of the donors for Mr. Gargiulo because I, I have had the honor and privilege of working as a teacher under his leadership. I love you. And it's good to hear you. Story, <laughs> I myself became a donor as well. well you became a donor because of uh, Mr. Gorgonzola? Yes. Wow. See, you're, you're, you're inspiring people already. She was one of the most fantastic sixth grade teachers I could have ever wanted oh, as please. a principal. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll have to ask Mr. Gargiulo to sing for you before he leaves. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for your call. It's good to hear from uh, people. And it, it is good to hear that you've inspired, wow. you know, one of your uh, staff members to be an organ. And, and, you know, that obviously is one of the reasons that we're having this conversation today is to provide information, maybe inspire people to at least consider and and have the conversation. I mean, I, I was impressed with, uh, you know, the earlier caller said that after hearing the program today, she's an organ donor, but she wants to have that conversation. And Richard, you said, talked about uh, how, uh, how important that really is. So what are, you know, we've touched on some of the challenges. Uh, if you could leave a message with, uh, we have a couple minutes left, so we don't have to just say that this is the end of the program, but Richard, if you could leave a message with our audience today about organ donation, what would it be? You know, organ donation, uh, you know, provides an opportunity uh, for you to create a legacy um, for somebody else. You, you know, one donor um, can help up to 75 different individuals. And it's not just those individuals uh, that they have affect, but it's those individuals, their family, uh, their community. So by saying yes to donation, having that conversation, uh, you can really impact um, your community and, and really the world. You know, I saw the statistic that said that uh, one person can donate, uh, and, and tell me if this is accurate, uh, can donate to like eight different people. Uh, are there organs out there that people don't think of that can be donated? Well, um, you know, a lot of people don't know what the pancreas does. Uh, they, they've heard uh, <laughs> or, the, or, the, the, or the, the or the or the small yeah. bowel, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, but there's also the things such as cornea transplants that can give the sight to two people, uh, or um, uh, tendons that can uh, be used for ACL surgery, or bone that can be used for spinal fusions. Uh, and in today's, um, you know, new transplants that you may have, uh, not have heard about is the vascular composite allografts, things such as arms, uh, hands, face, um, 
recently in the news, the uterus uh, uh, transplant. So um, more and more um, organs and tissues can be transplanted. I wish I knew about that face transplant years ago. <laughs> that, that, that's why you're in radio. <laughs> I set you up for that. <laughs> that, that. That was very easy. You know, uh, something else that we really haven't discussed, and we were hoping to have Representative uh, John Galloway on the program today. He's from Bucks County. I have a sense that uh, one of the reasons, there's, as you probably know, there's a huge uh, news story going on, a tragedy in Bucks County today. I have a feeling that that may have taken his attention away, but uh, he had proposed legislation that would offer a tax credit for Pennsylvanians who uh, could, if they donate an organ. Now, you know, I'm not going to talk specifically about that legislation because I wanted uh, Representative Galloway to explain it, but one of the questions that often comes up is whether people can actually sell organs. Dr. Freeman? So there are a lot of discussion with this and has been for decades within the ethics community. So certainly within the United States, it is illegal to sell organs. That's not true in every country. And when we talk about things like compensation for donors, we really try to stay away from that aspect because we think that that cheapens the, the human experience to lower it to this is a price for this kidney. Um, and so while we're trying, we certainly are not pursuing that actively in this country. We are looking at things like compensating people for their time, compensating people for their expenses, and as a way of acknowledging how important, how valuable it is to move forward uh, with donation. And so there's lots of approaches that are used to to encourage that. Well, I want to thank all of you for being with us today. A great discussion, and uh, I hope that uh, I know I learned something. I hope a lot of other people will uh, learn some things here today. Thank all of you for being with us today. Thank, thank you, Scott. Scott. Thank you. Coming up on uh, Monday's program, I think this is something you'll find fascinating, that uh, there was an underground water discovery, and it was tied to um, Boiling Springs in Cumberland County. And, uh, you know, this isn't a history thing so much as it is a discovery, you know, studying Boiling Springs, and then a discovery that, uh, you know, is widespread, can be used widespread afterwards. That's coming up on Monday's program. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health. Its 11 principal investigators and nine nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at pinnaclehealth.org slash myheart.